Please join with me as I pray, as we ask God to help us with this passage. Let's pray. Uh, Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are weak and frail people. We get tired, distracted, worried and anxious. Uh, Please give us grace to pay attention to what you're saying to us through your word now. Help us, we pray, to understand this text before us. Help me as I seek to teach it, to apply it, uh, so that we might be spiritually nourished from this. Uh, Grant us a bigger view of Jesus tonight and a greater confidence in his power to help us and sustain us in our lives as his followers. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I think it's easy for us to underestimate each other. Think about the number of times you've been surprised or shocked to learn of some hidden talent or some interesting fact about a person that you thought you had pretty much summed up. I see this whenever I've been part of that two truths and a lie icebreaker game that often gets played at the beginning of a growth group year. Uh, The idea of this icebreaker game is that you have to say two truths and then one false thing about yourself, and the other sort of group members then have to pick which one they think is the lie about you. Now, one of the true things about myself that I always pull out in this game is the fact that I once won first place in a jazz piano competition. People always call that one out as the lie. See, they think they've got me all summed up. They think that this boyfriend bought's all figured out. But then, bam, I slap them down with some awesome reality. Don't ask me to play the piano now, but just take my word for it, it once happened. See, it's easy for us to underestimate each other. But it's not just each other we do this to. I think we easily underestimate who Jesus is too. In fact, I think many of us go through life with a view of Jesus that is far too small. Or we might see him as still quite important, but we majorly underestimate so often his power, his love, and his relevance for our lives. But you see, there is real loss if we do this with Jesus. You see, if you're a Christian and you underestimate Jesus, you'll miss out on knowing the real joy, the real comfort and assurance that belongs to you, particularly in times of hardship and trial. And if you're not a Christian and you underestimate Jesus, well, you'll likely miss out on the glory of knowing him altogether. Uh, You'll be inclined to sum him up maybe as just an interesting, perhaps inspiring figure, but ultimately not someone that's worth giving up everything to follow. See, this passage tonight, Mark 4, 35 and following, prevents us from underestimating Jesus By showing himself to control even the wind and the sea, Jesus slaps down our small view of him and gives us the truer, bigger view that we need to see. He does this so that we won't fail to see the wonder of being in relationship with him. So what I'm going to do is spend the first half of this talk just getting into the passage, uh, unpacking what's actually taking place in this short but wonderful text. And then I just want to spend the second half just applying what we learn about Jesus for our lives today as we go through the various storms and trials of our own day and life. So first, the text. There are three parts I've broken it up to. The big storm, big miracle, the big question at the end. 
So first, the big storm. Uh, Every so often we get reminders of just how powerful and life-threatening nature can be. It was only three weeks ago that the world witnessed the immense power of the underwater volcanic eruption in the region of Tonga. This force of nature was 500 times uh, more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, the end of World War II. The blast was um, so loud it was actually heard as far away as Alaska and captured vividly via satellite cameras. Uh, Nature can be kind of scary powerful. Uh, You actually may have felt this a a few couple of weeks ago, back when Melbourne had those kind of run of thunderstorm days. Uh, I heard some of the loudest thunder I've ever heard a couple of weeks ago. Woke up my kids. They got freaked out. Well, it's one thing to kind of listen to the power of a thunderstorm from the safety of your home, but imagine experiencing that raw force of nature in a first-century wooden boat as kind of darkness is approaching and you're totally exposed by the kind of raging waters of the Sea of Galilee. Because that's where Jesus and his disciples find themselves at the start of our passage. Now, we saw last week that Jesus had been kind of teaching the crowds of people from a boat which was kind of acting as a floating platform. But at this point in time, Jesus makes the decision to set out across the Sea of Galilee, which is basically a huge lake, and continue his ministry with his disciples on the other side of that lake. And it's during this trip over the sea that things get scary for the disciples. And you can see it there. Read it with me in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. See, what we have here is a picture of kind of life, the life-threatening power of nature. Waves smashing into the side of the boat, boats getting swamped with water. The disciples are freaking out. And we need to remember that most of these guys, or a number of them, are actually experienced fishermen. They're not overreacting in this moment. They know the difference between kind of a choppy voyage and an I'm-going-to-die experience. But notice what Jesus is doing in verse 38. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. See, unlike the kind of wide-eyed panic of the disciples, Jesus has his eyes closed in a deep sleep. It's a kind of great picture of contrast. The disciples in panic, things out of control, Jesus at peace. Things kind of in control. But that peaceful sleep doesn't last long. His disciples, who I just imagine are stunned that their teacher is still sleeping in this moment, they go and wake him up. Verse 38. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? What's wrong with you? We're about to die in this storm and you're sleeping? Don't you care? I suspect... Uh, Very few of you have experienced the same kind of terror on the high seas as the disciples here, Uh, but I do think many of you have probably experienced the same maybe attitude towards Jesus when you've been faced with your own crisis or distress or overwhelming fear. Uh, I think many of us have cried out, along with the disciples at some point in life, Jesus, don't you care? Uh, Don't you care that I'm going to be penniless if I don't find work? Don't you care that I feel trapped in this terrible relationship? Don't you care that I'm suffering with this chronic illness? Don't you care that I may never marry? Don't you care that COVID is ruining our lives? 
See, it's not just the disciples who throw out the Jesus, don't you care question. When crisis comes, it's actually, I think, easy for all of us to underestimate Jesus and his love for us when we're overwhelmed and terrified in life. Uh, That's why I think this passage is so helpful for us, because it really speaks into the very real question that most of us kind of ask ourselves at different points in our life. Jesus, don't you care? So how does Jesus respond? Well, let's think about that in the second point, the big miracle. Uh, What strikes me about Jesus' miracle in this passage is the huge amount of power that he exerts with such little effort. You see, he simply speaks and suddenly the raging storm stops. It's hard for us to contemplate such enormous power bound up in one man, and I'd say not even the fictional superheroes that we see in movies have such remarkable power as the real and historical Jesus So if you notice that, take the character Storm from the X-Men series. Storm has the ability to control the weather and the atmosphere. She's one of the most powerful X-Men. But you'll notice if you've seen the movies, it always sort of takes her a certain amount of effort to control the weather. Her eyes have to turn white, takes a while to happen sometimes. Then often she's like hugely exhausted. But the real and historical cheeses... He's so much better, more powerful than even the fictional superheroes we come up with. Eyewitness testimony tells us that he simply spoke and the wind and the waves obeyed. See, look at verse 39. He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Uh, See, when I read this, it almost feels as though Jesus rebukes this storm as though it was like a toddler who's acting up. Cut that racket out right now. The main difference is the storm, unlike most toddlers, immediately obey. Now, I imagine the disciples are standing kind of speechless, dripping wet in this moment. Put yourself in their shoes. Uh, Imagine what they would be feeling in that moment. You've just moved from kind of sheer panic, your life flashing before your eyes, to complete kind of silence and tranquility all around you. All because your teacher told the storm off. Imagine trying to take that all in as one of Jesus' disciples. Before they can say anything to Jesus, Jesus actually has something to say to them, doesn't he? And did you notice that there are really kind of two rebukes going on in verses 39 to 40? The first rebuke gets delivered to the storm. We've seen that one. But the second rebuke, a rebuke of love, gets delivered to the disciples. You see that in verse 40. Then he said to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, they're actually kind of stinging words in many ways. Jesus doesn't say, are you kind of struggling with your faith today, guys? Now he actually says, do you have no faith? So where did the disciples go wrong in this moment? Uh, Well, the heart of the issue is that they simply had too small a view of Jesus. They underestimated him. And I think you see this in kind of two main areas within this moment of crisis. First, they had too small a view, I think, of his love for them. Remember what they had said to Jesus in that moment of panic? Do you not care? 
Don't you care that we're going to die? Are you just going to lay there and ignore our need? Though they had witnessed Jesus' compassion on the leper of chapter 1, though they had seen him welcome the social outcast and give a paralyzed man his life back in chapter 2, they doubted his love for them, his, his closest companions. Why should they think Jesus would abandon them in this moment? They actually had too small a view of Jesus' love. But I think they had too small a view of Jesus' power as well. See, they assumed they were about to die in this moment. They assumed the power of the storm would overwhelm them even with Jesus in the boat. Yet they had repeatedly seen his power at play. Power to cleanse people of sickness, to cast out demons. They had seen Jesus' power to restore and to save life in the most supernatural ways. Jesus was never going to be overtaken by this storm. They actually had too small a view of his power. See, the disciples' fear overtook their faith in Jesus because even after all they had seen at this point in his ministry, it was actually still too small in their eyes, too small in love, too small in power. And you see, a small Jesus will never be a match for a big storm. But in stilling the storm simply with a word, Jesus graciously, lovingly gives them the truer, bigger picture of himself that they actually desperately need to see. So we've seen the big storm, then the big miracle. We'll finally come to the big question of this passage. Look at verse 41. And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Who on earth is this? Uh, Some of you may know the singer Jewel. Uh, She was more of a kind of a pop star back in the 90s, early 2000s. But a a few years back, Jewel went undercover and sung one of her biggest hits at a karaoke bar. It was really cool to see. Uh, When she walked on stage, she kind of got no major attention by the crowd. But when she started singing... Everyone in the audience was just gobsmacked at her skill. People were kind of gasping, looking around, and basically asking the same question, who is this? Who on earth is this? What a voice. See, the audience had tasted the greatness of someone they kind of couldn't really see yet. And it's a little bit like that with the disciples here. They were kind of tasting the greatness of the Messiah, the Son of God, that they couldn't really see yet. Who is this man? But it's more than a mix of just amazement and wonder. They're actually terrified too, aren't they? They're terrified by the sheer power of God that they have just seen exercised before them. But that's actually what Jesus wanted to show them. He wanted them to see that he does in fact have the power of God. Now, we've already seen in Mark that Jesus demonstrated his divine authority to forgive sin by raising the paralytic. Now here, Jesus displays once again his divine authority, this time over the elements themselves, creation itself. In fact, you may have noticed that during the first Bible reading Helen read out, Uh, the similarities between the divine authority 
of the saving God in Psalm 107 than the divine authority of the saving Jesus in Mark 4. If you missed it, I'll read it again, and I want you to try and see if you can pick up the parallels. So I'll read the passage. Others went out in, others went to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast waters. They saw the Lord's works, his wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea. Rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced when the waves grew quiet. Then he guided them to harbor, the harbor they longed for. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. Who then is Jesus? See, this event in Mark chapter 4 helps us to see that he is the great saving Lord of Psalm 107. The disciples had been given an awesome behind-the-scenes view of Jesus' glory as the Son of God. See, what happens in this passage, Mark 4, challenges so many of our commonly held small views of Jesus. I remember back when I was a youth group leader asking a year 11 boy what his view on Jesus was. And I remember him as he sipped his coffee. He said, seems like a pretty good bloke. But you see, pretty good doesn't even begin to do justice to the picture we see in Mark 4. See, the the neighbour who mows your nature strip, he's a pretty good bloke. The guy who opens the door for you as you're walking through, he's a pretty good bloke. The man who stills a storm with a word, he's something else. Don't underestimate Jesus' identity. This event tells us the disciples didn't just have a pretty good bloke in the boat with them, nor did they have a wise teacher, nor did they have a positive role model. The disciples had more than a holy prophet. The disciples had the saving God of faithful love with them in that boat, in the man Jesus. This is Jesus giving his followers a much-needed bigger view of himself. So how should we apply this text? Uh, Not many of us, I imagine, will find ourselves stuck in a storm out in Galilee, Uh, But we will find ourselves in other moments of crisis where we feel panicked, overwhelmed, in distress. Uh, This text gives us a bigger picture of Jesus that we're called to hold on to even in the most difficult storms of life. It tells us that Jesus is the powerful Son of God who we can always entrust our very lives to. Uh, We will go through different storms to the disciples, but we have the same Jesus. Uh, This was actually how the Christians of the first few centuries chose to apply this passage when they felt overwhelmed by Roman persecution. Uh, They clung on to the truth that Jesus was their saviour in the midst of their peril. Uh, He would not let death have the final say, but bring them safely into his promised kingdom. 
Like the disciples, he would be with them in the boat of their experience. This is why in ancient Christian art, the church was often depicted as a boat, and in many instances with Jesus in the boat. It was a symbol based off this text of Jesus' constant help and salvation. Tertullian, who was a kind of second, third century Christian writer, uh, said this, but that little ship did present a figure of the church in that she is disquieted in the sea, that is, in the world, by the waves, that is, by persecutions and temptations. The Lord, through patience, sleeping as it were, until roused in their last extremities by the power of the saints, he checks the world and restores tranquility to his own. See, sometimes we wonder how the early church weathered the extreme persecution uh, that came at various points under various emperors, but the words of Tertullian remind us that they did so because they had a big view of Jesus. They rightly saw him as the divine saviour of this passage. And I think if we have any hope of weathering the storms of our lives, the trials, the distress, the crises we go through, we likewise need to actually grasp the bigger view of Jesus that this passage gives us. And there are just three things I think this passage helps us to, uh, to help with that bigger view of Jesus. It tells us that he is supremely powerful, completely trustworthy, always present. So this passage shows us that we need a bigger view of Jesus' power. He is supremely powerful. I think it's easy to become like the disciples when we go through great fears and challenges in our lives. Like them, we can feel overwhelmed in the moment. We can start to doubt even Jesus' ability to help and sustain us. Now, we may not always admit that's what we think, but sometimes our attitudes and our actions give us away. Our lack of prayer often betrays a lack of confidence in Jesus to do anything. Our despondency, a sense of hopelessness, often betrays a lack of expectation that Jesus is in control and could use any of this for any purpose in the world. I wonder if you felt like that. I think I struggled a bit with that in the early stages of my dad's Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the enormity of the challenge ahead tended, I think, to overshadow the power of Jesus, which in theory I knew was a present help. See, it wasn't always easy to pray, not always even easy to know what to pray for, because there just didn't seem like a workable path forward. And maybe you've felt like that too. There's, where's the workable path forward here? I'm sure a number of you have actually gone through significantly more painful trials, maybe regarding a loved one or, or your health or your employment, your sexuality, a damaged relationship. Maybe in your darker moments you've actually thought, what can Jesus possibly do here? Uh, this passage shows us that Jesus is bigger than even our biggest crisis, though. It's telling us that he is the Lord of Psalm 107. His divine power was able to um, still a raging storm. More than that, his mighty power evidenced in his death and then resurrection defeated our greatest crisis of sin and death. Jesus is bigger than dementia or chronic illness or a ruined relationship. Jesus is actually 
bigger. Now, this isn't to say that Jesus will always immediately bring the tranquility to the crisis in our life, but it is to say that as with the disciples, he will powerfully keep you going through it and he will powerfully grow you through it as you trust him. Uh, The Apostle Paul spoke of this power of Jesus when he experienced the thorn in his flesh that he talks about, that trying period of his life. In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, he writes, Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul's not just some weirdo who just loved to experience pain. What he loved was to see the great power of Christ at work in him at his lowest points. Because it was in those low moments, those moments of crisis, that he saw the big Jesus with extra clarity. See, often it's when we feel overwhelmed and small that Jesus helps us to see him as the big and powerful saviour that he is. And I think that's been true over the past year with my family, actually, as we've gone through the sadness of watching Dad deteriorate. We've seen the power of Jesus sustain us and keep us We've seen him provide for my dad and my mum. I think we've all actually grown in greater dependence on Jesus. And through all of this, Jesus has been reminding us of his great power to reverse the effects of sin, suffering, sickness, death. Just like the apostles on the tumultuous sea, the crisis actually won't last forever. This passage gives us a bigger view of Jesus' power, but it also gives us a bigger view of Jesus' faithfulness. Uh, He is completely trustworthy. See, what Jesus says is what Jesus does. Uh, You might have noticed that in the passage, that it was actually Jesus' idea to travel over to the other side of the sea. He made his plan plain to them in verse 35. And regardless of the storm, Jesus kept his word. In Mark chapter 5, verse 1, Mark actually makes sure he records the fact that they landed safely on the other side. See, it was always Jesus' intention to have his disciples reach the other side. Now, I'm sure Jesus' words may have been completely forgotten by his disciples when the storm hit, but actually it was those words who guaranteed their their safety. He had already committed to bring them safely across that sea, See, imagine if they had remembered those words in the moment of their crisis. Storm would have still been scary, but instead of saying in a panic, Jesus, don't you care? They could have said with a sense of assurance, Jesus, we trust that you will do as you say. Please help us now. See, if you are a follower of Jesus today, he has given you a greater word of security. He does more than promise to save you from a moment of death, but but save you from an eternity of death. Jesus gives you the sure promise of eternal life through faith in him and his death for you. This is why, actually, the words of the disciples in verse 38 are so off the mark. 
See, they in many ways had accused Jesus of not caring that they were going to die. But nothing could have been further from the truth. The reason that the Son of God left the glories of heaven and took on the flesh of man, allowing himself to be killed, rejected and killed, was because he cares about the fact that they were going to die and then face God's judgment for sin. It's because Jesus cares about your mortality, your death too, that he came and died. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It's only through his death for sin and his powerful resurrection that any of us have any hope in the face of death. This passage reminds us that Jesus is trustworthy, his word is true, his love is deep. But finally, this passage gives us a bigger view of Jesus' presence. He is always present with us in whatever storm we go through. Uh, Last year during lockdown, I was chatting with one of my neighbours who was pretty upset with the way things were, a bit angry at the way our Premier was running things. I said to him, look, I hear what you're saying. Politicians don't always get it right. In fact, often they disappoint us. Uh, And that's why actually Jesus, I think, is such a better ruler to trust in. And he took him what I said for a moment and then just said, yeah, but he's not sitting in Parliament where he can actually affect our lives, is he? And maybe you've kind of thought along similar lines. Jesus is up there in heaven, but he's not down here, not in any real way. Jesus feels disconnected from my life and my real problems. But you see, this passage, again, I think shows us that Jesus is committed to sticking with his followers in the storms they go through. Uh, He knew his disciples would go through what they would go through on that lake, and he was willing to go through it with them. Jesus was present, and he is present with his people. And that's very true for us today. Jesus is always present with us now by his spirit. In fact, Paul speaks of Christ living within me, and Christ himself promises that he will be with his followers always to the very end of the age. Now, sometimes when you're going through a rough patch, hearing someone say to you, Jesus is with you, can sometimes feel a little cliched, and I suspect that maybe for some of us it's lost its force a little bit too. Uh, But we shouldn't let it lose its force. We shouldn't let it become a cliche in our lives. Jesus' presence in your life by his spirit should serve as a wonderful comfort to you because it tells you that you're never alone. Jesus will remain even if others fall away. Jesus will love you even if others hate you. Jesus will mediate your prayers to a God who hears you. Jesus will hold you in the very darkest moments of death so you not you don't you do not meet that moment alone you see that's actually one of the the big things this passage kind of highlights i think the disciples may have avoided death on the day of this storm but they like all of us actually did meet death one day and see on the day of our death even then we can know that jesus is still present to help us uh the R. Al Dabney, a 19th century pastor and theologian, wrote these words about the glory of Jesus' presence, particularly in the moment of death. And I like them because it, they not only talk about the real reality of that moment, but just who Jesus is as well. He says these words, 
So you, so must you die, my friend, and die. Though wife and children and officious comrades be crowding around your bed and loved ones be stooping to receive your last sigh to their very hearts and your dying head be pillowed upon the bosom which the dearest, which was the dearest resting place of your sorrows while living, the last approach of death will separate you from them all and you will meet him, that is death, alone. But then it is that Jesus Christ draws near as an omnipotent saviour. He alone of all the universe has fathomed the deepest abysses of death, has explored all its caverns of despair, and has returned from them a conqueror. He is not only sympathising man, but omnipresent God, who can go with us into the penetralia of the court of death. When our last labour comes, then let us say, brethren, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You see, it's no small thing, no cliche, to say that the omnipotent Jesus of Mark chapter 4 is present with us in our life and in our death. Who then is Jesus? Well, Mark 4 has shown us that he is the almighty Lord, who you can trust with your life through the storms of your life. We must not underestimate him. He is supremely powerful, completely trustworthy, and always present. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the great Saviour you have sent us. Thank you for Jesus, who is supremely powerful, completely trustworthy, always present in our lives. Help us to remember this, uh, particularly as we go through our own moments of crises, distress, fear. Grant us a faith in Jesus, in the big Jesus we have seen tonight. And in his name we pray this. Amen.